Now, Jeanne and I were baptized in the Spirit in 1962, so we're getting a bit long in the tooth. But it's, what is it, 27 years, uh, very exciting years. Uh, occasionally, uh, something we've had to go through may have been a little bit boring. And I want to begin this afternoon by telling you of something that happened just a few days ago, which must rank as one of the most boring times I've had in all these years. And that was a conference which I went to in Switzerland. And we decided, for better or for worse, to have an evening, and these were people from Eastern Europe as well as Western Europe who were there, to have an evening on the subject of the church. And it was boring. And I can now understand why so many people who don't, maybe some even who've strayed in here, not wondering, wondering quite what was going on here, if you've come in, and I sympathize with you if you find Jesus Christ very exciting and the church really rather dull. And that's what we had to endure that whole evening. First of all, we had a Roman Catholic on his feet, a Jesuit, telling us about the Roman Catholic Church. Well, if you think of the church as the bride of Christ, I don't think there was anything terribly seductive about what we heard about the Roman Catholic Church. Well then, after that, a German Lutheran went through the whole account of the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation and the justification for the existence of the Lutheran Church. By this time, most people were almost asleep with boredom. It was terrible. Well, since we had one or two contributors from Britain, we thought we'd save the day by having a well-known leader from one of the house churches to tell us about the church from the house church point of view. Well, that finished us off. It, <laughs> it was terrible. And I must say that I found that evening terribly boring until right at the end. And, you know, we needed a miracle to save the evening. And uh, a bespeckled Roman Catholic priest called Peter Hawkin, whom some of you I know know him. He lives in America, but he uh, is, is, is English. Uh, he got up to summarize it, to summarize the boredom of it. And he told us just one <clears throat> or two things, one thing which has stuck in my mind, which I share with you this afternoon, because to me it gave a whole revolutionary idea of the church. <clears throat> And he spoke to us about the bride of Christ. And he asked us a very simple question. He said, um, where is the bride of Christ? Now, I had to think hard because I'd begun, beginning to think that having been so bored by all the other speakers, there ought to be at least someone there who could get up and say something about the Anglican church. But then I thought, well, that would be very boring too. Where is the bride of Christ? And I suppose most of us here, certainly I would, I think, have responded to that question by saying, well, of course, the bride of Christ is on earth. That the Lord is preparing his bride on earth for the, for the uh, marriage with Christ. Christ is going to come and there's going to be a wonderful marriage feast and a coming together of the church, the bride of Christ, with the bridegroom Christ. And most of us would probably think like that. Certainly, a lot of our thinking over the last 10 or 15 years has been stimulated by people who have a very idealistic idea of the church, that the church is 
to be the perfect bride, and so they're looking for a perfect church here on earth. And what Peter Hawkin did, which revolutionized my thinking on this, was he said, if you look in the book of Revelation in chapter 21, you will see that the bride of Christ is not on earth, but is in heaven. When John is told by the angel, I'm going to introduce you to the bride of Christ, the angel has to take John in vision from earth to heaven and introduces the bride of Christ to John there in heaven. The bride of Christ is not on earth. The bride of Christ is in heaven. Now you think about that. It'll, if it has the revolutionary effect it has on you, it has on me, it will change your thinking about a lot of things. We are not looking for a perfect church here on earth. There will be no perfect church. But praise the Lord, there is the church, the body of Christ on earth. It's very imperfect. Most of us here belong to one part of it, the Anglican part of it. Very imperfect. God has great purposes for his body here on earth. But the perfecting is done in heaven, not on earth. That helped me a great deal and I share it with you now. I want to say just a few words before we get on to look at the Word of God together, just to say a few words about Soma. And I'm only going to tell you a few things about what's happening right now, some very exciting things, and things that are happening for the first time, some first-timers. We've had this year, for the first time, a joint Soma Anglican Renewal Ministries team. And it happens to have been the largest team that we've ever sent out. It was 32 people. They went out from Australia and from New Zealand to the islands of Fiji and Tonga. And they had marvelous ministry out there. There was a little bit of a problem over this because uh, probably you may not know this, but the islands of Fiji and Tonga are part of what's known as Polynesia and therefore are part of the Anglican province of New Zealand. And therefore, because we have kind of seen SOMA and ARM, SOMA handling overseas ministries, ARM handling uh, local or national ministries or provincial ministries, there was a bit of a problem here because Fiji was certainly overseas, uh, but it was part of the province of New Zealand. And so we thought well, the best way to overcome this problem is for ARM and SOMA to join together and send a joint team out. And it went out under sponsorship of both and has been very successful. And one of the things that I look forward to very much in the coming years is even closer links than we've had in the past between SOMA and ARM and the various national bodies and international bodies all over the world. We're going to be cooperating together and working together as we've seen just so recently in the South Pacific. Another first this year is that SOMA has got involved in church planting and we've been involved in Argentina this year because the bishop, uh, Richard Cutts, invited a SOMA team from the United States to fly down from Buenos Aires to the most southerly city in the southern hemisphere, the city of Oshawa, which is only a little distance north of Cape Horn. It takes you four hours to fly from Buenos Aires down right down in the far southern part of the world. And the bishop and a team went down there, rented a school, and began to preach the gospel. And now, praise God, there's a flourishing church in that city. So that's another thing we've done for the first time this year. We're also moving out into new countries. This year we will be ministering in 
Burundi in East Africa for the first time in August. Next year we have a team going to Mexico for the first time and also to the Central African country of Zaire. So we're doing things, pioneering things all the time. We hope uh, this year we will have about 30 teams going out. Next year we hope we will have up to 50 teams going all over the world in these ministries of sharing the good things that we have benefited so much from in Britain and sharing them out in Africa, Asia, Latin America, all over the world, wherever we get a call from the church to do this. I'm very grateful to God for sending us three years ago, John and Valerie Lowe, some of you have met them as, they, as you came in, perhaps they could stand up just for a moment so you'll see them again. John and Valerie do a fantastic job in, uh, on the home base here in uh, arranging these teams to go out. We have four teams from Britain going to Africa in August, just in that one month of August. Uh, just recently, Jeanne and I have been out in New Zealand speaking at the Anglican Renewal Ministries conference there, and we found some quite interesting new developments in New Zealand. For example, in Christchurch, New Zealand, there is now an armed group that calls themselves CHARM, C-H-A-R-M. In Wellington, there's a group which calls itself WARM, Wellington Anglican Renewal Ministries. I only wondered what would happen if there was an Anglican Real Ministries group in Harrogate. It might have some problems. <laughs> but there we are. It's wonderful to see all over the world now, not only in the, in the um, uh, Western world, as we might call it, but also in the developing countries, Anglican Real Ministries or similar bodies uh, being set up. In South Africa, for example, this year, Support Ministries is changing its name to Anglican Renewal Ministries Southern Africa. And Jan and I are going to be in South Africa in August to meet the trustees of this new body and to talk and find ways in which SOMA and um, Southern Africa can be working together in the future. Now I want to read to you from St. Luke's Gospel, Chapter 5. The theme that I've chosen for this afternoon is let's go fishing together. And I want to read to you from Chapter 5, beginning at verse 1 of St. Luke's Gospel. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding round him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats, left there by the fishermen, who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down the nets for catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. 
From now on you will catch fish, catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Last Saturday, I went down, Jean and I went down to Bristol to Trinity College, which is an Anglican theological college there, and I was asked to speak at the valedictory where there were over 40 men and women who were going out from the college in full-time Christian ministry. It's the first time I've ever been asked to do that, and naturally I suppose my mind went back over the 34 years since I was ordained in 1955. And I told them that there were three things uh, which uh, were the same then or similar then to today. Uh, in 1955, in the summer, there was a rail strike. And uh, I remember I had to uh, hitch a lift from Cambridge to my preordination retreat. 1955 also was a fantastically hot summer, very like the summer uh, we are enjoying right now. But the most important thing that reminded me of 34 years ago is that Billy Graham had just held his first missions in Britain, 1954 at Haringey, and 1955, the year of my ordination, at Wembley. Jan and I were both involved then in counseling, working for the Billy Graham mission, which had such an impact on our nation. And now this year, we're seeing, we're right now in the midst of Billy's, almost his, certainly his last major mission in this country. And so we can look back to the beginning of Billy's ministry, an era which is coming to an end this year. And I think it's good for us both to look back and also to look forward. Because I believe there's a major difference between the situation in the middle of the 1950s and the situation now as we move towards the 90s and the end of the second Christian millennium. The difference is this. We didn't know it at the time but 1954-1955, the Billy Graham visit, was, I believe, part of God's preparation for the church in this country for a period of drought. These 30 years, we have lived through drought conditions spiritually in this country. We have seen the decline of our churches. There have been some very wonderful things that have happened too. But the overall picture has been of spiritual decline. But 1989, I believe is the prelude to a time of harvesting, a time of reaping. God doesn't mock us. He doesn't call the whole Anglican communion worldwide and most other churches to a decade of evangelism if it isn't his intention that it's going to be time of harvesting. A time for which the 50s, the 60s, the 70s and the 80s have been preparation. Drought yet, yes, but not lost years. Years when God has been preparing a people to be harvesters in the harvest fields of the 90s and on into the second millennium, or third millennium. Decade of evangelism. Michael Marshall has written a book about the Lambeth Conference, and in it he draws attention to the fact of the interesting link between the conference that we had just before Lambeth and the Lambeth Conference itself. In one particular respect, he believes in this book, and I believe it's true, that it was the impact of that pre-Lambeth 
charismatic conference that stirred the bishops up to commit the whole Anglican communion worldwide to a decade of evangelism. The links are there. The General Synod of the Church of England meets shortly in York, and on the agenda is the Church of England's response to this call of the decade of evangelism. And just in May, the Anglican primates met in Cyprus, and one very important part of their agenda, with all the controversial things they had to discuss also, was how the Anglican communion can become a church used by God in these ten years of evangelism. And I want to go back a little bit and tell you uh, where I believe the charismatic renewal has been pioneering this for a long time. The story goes back to 1984 when a group of nine of us, including three Anglicans, Terry Fulham from the United States, Bill Burnett from South Africa and myself, nine of us met in Rome. And at that meeting, Father Tom Forrest, who is the leader of Evangelization 2000, the Roman Catholic program for the decade of evangelism, he shared with us his vision. But at that time, he'd been able to share with very few people. He was hoping, before he left Rome, to go back to the United States to share this with the Pope himself. And he told us of this vision, that by the year 2000, which will be Jesus' 2000th birthday, we'll be able to present him with a birthday present of a world more Christian than not. That came to him through a, a, a throwaway remark he heard of someone who said about Christianity, oh, it's only a minority religion. Because of that, he felt, right, let's pray, let's work, let's seek the Lord so that by the year 2000, there will be whatever it needs to be, five billion people plus one who are Christians. And he shared this vision with us, and fairly soon after that, he was able to share it with the Pope himself, who is backing this work of Tom Forrest's. And we were grabbed by the same vision ourselves. There followed one or two conferences or consultations in Singapore in which a number of leaders from Roman Catholic renewal and the renewal in the historic churches, Pentecostal churches, and the non-denominational house churches. We met twice, and last May we decided to have a prayer vigil to set aside a week of prayer in Jerusalem before the day of Pentecost. And there the Lord spoke very clearly to us on a number of things. He confirmed that it's his desire, that he's put this desire in our hearts, that somehow or ever this marvelous work of renewal throughout the churches of the world that's still going on and needs to continue to go on. We need to go on with love and grace to share this message of renewal with the whole church. But now has come the time when we move out as the Spirit leads us in new dynamic evangelism to share with the world the good news of Jesus Christ. And so next year there are going to be two continental conferences, one in Bern in Switzerland for Europe, one in the United States in Indianapolis, leading up to the first year of the decade, the launching of the decade in 1991 with a united conference in Brighton here in England, uh, to launch that decade. This is very exciting, what God is doing. Because 
all over the world, one meets the same confirmation. Now is the time. Now is the, to use the Greek word, the kairos, the time of God has come, in which all the blessings which we have had from him will continue in new dynamic prayer, but a new breaking in to the world and the strongholds of evil in our country and around the world, a breaking in of the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now in Jerusalem, a number of remarkable things happened, but I only want to share one with you, which to me was probably the highlight of the whole week we had. And that was, we had a speaker on one of the evenings, a Roman Catholic from Mexico. His name is Jose Prado. He's, he's known more as Pepe Prado. He's a layman. He's written over 30 books, quite a young man, a very dynamic Roman Catholic. And he chose as his passage the passage that I've just read to you from the fifth chapter of Luke's Gospel. He gave a marvelous message. Four nights later, we invited a very famous leader, Floyd McClung, who's the International Director of Youth with a Mission. We invited Floyd to speak in the evening. And to our amazement, and initially our shock, he said, the passage I want to speak to you about tonight is Luke chapter 5. Now, I thought, goodness me, what is he going to do? Is he, is he going to correct the Roman Catholic in his faulty exegesis? What's he going to do? How is he going to handle this? Well, it was beautiful. Those two talks fitted together like a glove. And afterwards, I went up to Floyd and I said, did you realize that Pepe Prado spoke on this four nights ago? He said, I'm, no, I didn't know that, he said, because I wasn't present. I had to go out that evening. He never heard the talk. Now, you could call that a coincidence if you like. I believe it was the voice of God. The voice of God focusing for us on this lovely yet simple story of Jesus showing his disciples how to fish successfully. And that's the message I want to bring to you now this afternoon. First thing I want to say is a general thing, but I think important. I believe that what the Lord is calling us to do, every one of us here, lay people, clergy, bishops, leaders of other churches, because this is not just a message for Anglicans. About the decade of evangelism, we are only going to treat God's word seriously to us if we realize the radical nature of the change that is needed in our attitudes, in our outlook, in our programs, in our planning, in our church council meetings, in our preaching, in our whole strategy for the parish, the strategy for the diocese. That has got to change radically. Because my knowledge of parishes and dioceses is they're full up to here with work of one kind or another. And how to slip in evangelism. You can't just slip it in. It's got to permeate the whole life of the church. Our whole attitude and outlook has really got to change. That's the message I want to bring. And I want to... Uh, share it with you this afternoon. I want us to think of the, 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 the two professions, if you like, the, the profession of being a fisherman and the profession of being a farmer. You couldn't have anything more different than fishing and farming. 
And I want to say this too, that in farming I would include also, of course, sheep farming, being a shepherd. And the point I want to make is that there is an overwhelming emphasis in most churches, particularly in the Anglican church, on farming and pastoring and shepherding, and very little emphasis or even understanding of fishing. They are totally different. And I believe the change that needs to come about, not to forsake pastoring, that's important, not to forsake the sheep, but to see that the Lord is calling us not only to be farmers and to be uh, shepherds, but also to be fishermen and successful fishermen. It's the overwhelming emphasis in the, New Test uh, in, in the uh, teaching of Jesus. Now, in our Anglican uh, services of ordination, uh, deacons, priests, bishops, there is one question that is asked. If you look through it, you'll see the overwhelming emphasis is on pastoral care. But in one particular, it's different. The bishop says to the candidates to be ordained, will you, in the strength of the Holy Spirit, continually stir up the gift of God that is in you to make Christ known to all men? So it's there. And now, the leading of the Holy Spirit, the Lord is saying to the whole Church of England, the whole Anglican Communion, and to all other churches, evangelize. Do evangelism. I want to go back to this difference between a fisherman and a farmer. The thing about a farmer, and just last night we stayed at a farm, the farmer and his wife, and so this was vividly brought home to me when Pat took me out for a walk and I said to her, now where is the extent of your farm? And she said to me, she said, look down in the dip there and there are some trees. That's the end of our farm in that direction. Look over there and you'll see some trees, a line of trees. That's our last field there. And so she uh, showed me the extent of the farm. And farms you know exactly to the nearest square inch exactly what your farm is. In fact, most farmers put up notices around the, the fence, trespasses will be prosecuted. Now that's the concept of a farm, and you farm within those boundaries. You don't farm on another person's farm. And if you're a sheep farmer, there are your sheep. And every day you count them. And if they're only 99 instead of 100, then you go and look for the one that is lost. But brothers and sisters, fishing is totally different. You don't stick a, a fence out in the sea and say, that's my territory. Some people try to do it today, but normally you can't do it. And you don't know how many fish there are. There may be none, there may be thousands. It's a, it's a totally different idea. And do you see how when we're thinking of farming and setting the demarcation lines of the farm, does it not begin to make us as Anglicans think about parish boundaries and begin to think about sheep stealing? He's stealing from my sheep. Do you see, it's very different. Fishing. Fisherman doesn't go and say, he's stolen my fish. They're not his fish. They're no one's fish. They're the fish that you, the first person to get there gets them. And there aren't any boundaries. 
Another interesting thing is, at least in those days, is that when you get the, you, you farm and you get the harvest in, you can store the grain. But you can't do that with fish. You can't store fish. You can now through refrigeration, but you couldn't 2,000 years ago. The fishermen who caught fish had to go out the next night and the next night and the next night and the next night to go on catching fish. It's a different idea, different concept altogether. Another thing about the farmer, the farmer is very familiar with his farm. Probably every day of the week he goes down the same farm track, past the same buildings. He knows exactly where everything is. It's his. He's familiar with it, but the fisherman isn't. Fisherman is just a blank sea, and he has to go out there and find the fish. Very different idea. Another interesting difference is that with the farmer, the farmer does, sorry, God does most of the work. Now, I hope um, that uh, Reg, who I was staying with, who is a farmer, will understand what I mean by that. I know Reg works very hard on the farm. But in the end, it's God who gives the increase. One man may sow, uh, another uh, will water, another person might later reap, but it's God who gives the increase. But when you think about fishing, God really doesn't come into it, unless you have a miracle like in this story. The work is done by the fisherman. If he doesn't go out and do it, no fish will be caught. So I want us to think for a moment this afternoon about fishing, and particularly this story. So I want us to think for a moment this afternoon about fishing, and particularly this story. And I think we learn several things in this story which can be helpful to us. The first thing that the disciples, we learn about the disciples in this story is they had to handle failure. They had to admit it, and they had to know how to handle it. Now, we have to do the same. And we won't get anywhere in the decade of evangelism if we don't recognize the fact that basically, with a few exceptions, basically we have been failures. We haven't seen, like in the early church, the wonderful way in which thousands of people have entered the kingdom. We haven't seen that sort of church growth on the whole, we have seen church decline. The point I want to make here is that it doesn't really matter in this story whether the fishermen had gone out fishing or whether they had stayed and not gone out fishing. They caught nothing. They both caught nothing. And it doesn't matter that much if you say, well, I've tried very hard and I've organized this mission and that mission and I have been very much involved in evangelism. If you have caught nothing or caught very, very little, you're not that much better off than the thousands and thousands of Christians in this country who have never even attempted to do any fishing. We're all in the same boat as far as that is concerned. doesn't make any difference. So we all of us have got to learn from failure. We've been very inspired recently by meeting a young Christian leader from Thailand, a man by the name of Krinsak carry on one sack, quite a name, quite a mouthful. And he has this vision in Thailand of planting a church in every village and every town in that country. He already has a huge church in Bangkok, over 3,000 members. 
and he told us how exciting it is to go from village to village in Thailand. You go to a little Thai village and you go there and you meet the first person. You say to them, excuse me, do you know Jesus Christ? And they would say, no, I don't think we do. Can you tell us which house he lives in? They've never heard of Jesus Christ. And so for them, it's very much primary evangelism. They've got that vision and they're being successful. Thousands of Buddhists are now becoming Christians through the ministry of those churches. And you know, I don't need to tell you this afternoon, all over the world, not in every place, but in many places, churches are growing, doubling, trebling, and that sort of thing. But here, we've worked hard, we've fished all night, we've caught a little, but not very much. Our churches have been, on the whole, declining. And we need to admit it. We need to say, as the disciples had to say to Jesus, I'm sorry, we've labored all night, we've got nothing to show for it. That's where we have to begin. But the second point, which, uh, which springs from that, we have to find out, as the disciples did in this story, how to turn failure into success. Many years ago, I met a well-known evangelist called Oral Roberts, an American evangelist. He had just uh, left his church, the Pentecostal Holiness Church in America, and become a Methodist. And so he wasn't in too much good favor with Pentecostals in this country. So he was coming over and he was going to have some meetings at the Central Hall Westminster, organized by Methodists. And so I got involved with him in those meetings. And while he was with me, he gave me a book. And he said, Michael, this book has meant more to me than any other book apart from the Bible. And I looked at the book, and it was by a man called Bethka. And the book is How I Changed from Failure to Success in Selling. It was a book about selling. I was horrified. And all my, all my suspicions of, of, of commercial evangelism uh, came to my mind. But I put them aside, I put the book in the book rack and forgot it. A few years later, I took it out and wondered what Oral Roberts had found in it. And if you read that book, you'll find there's a lot you can learn about evangelism in that book, Techniques of Evangelism. But the point we need to be looking for in a decade of evangelism that's coming very soon now is how can we in this country turn our failures in our parishes, in our churches, in our dioceses, right across the country, in all denominations, how can we turn failure into success? And I think we can learn a lot from this story. The first thing I want us to learn is from Jesus himself. Jesus was never mesmerized by crowds. He often spoke to crowds, preached sermons to crowds, as on this occasion. Great crowds of people. But the interesting thing to me about this story is that Jesus' mind was not concentrating on the crowds, but on the fishermen. Now that was significant because, as you know, those fishermen who weren't part of the crowd were the ones who were not only going to catch the fish, but three years later were going to catch men, 3,000 at a time. They were the men he was looking for. And one of the most important things, I believe, that David McInnes said this morning was, using the imagery of harvesting, 
the harvesters, many of them, are not yet converted. They're not yet Christians. But we've got to look for them. And I believe this great harvest, or this great catch, using the imagery of fishing, is going to take place in the next ten years or so. A great deal of that work is going to be done by people who are not yet in the kingdom. And we need to look out for them. We, all of us need to be looking out for the leaders, the people who are going to do that work. Jesus had that. And yet these people were hardly attentive. They weren't probably even listening to what Jesus said. They were just washing their nets on the seashore. I was talking last week to Peter Hawkins and about a number of things. One of the things he said to me, and he probably knows more about renewal than anyone else in the world. He studied it very closely. He said, you know, there are a number of things to look for, and renewal will prosper and will be, be uh, fruitful and will be successful if you find one factor, and that is lay leadership. If the lay people, I know David Smith, if he's still awake down there, will be leaping with joy when he hears me say this, Lay people. Where there is strong lay leadership, the renewal flourishes. Where it is weak, it never flourishes. And therefore, if I may say this to the clergy present, one of your most important functions as a leader of leaders is to discover, as Jesus did, the leaders. Discover the people who are going to do most of the ministry. Then you can have a long holiday when you've trained them. That's the key, I believe, one of the keys we see here. Secondly, very interesting, is in order to win these men, Jesus got them involved. Now this is where Bethke's book is interesting because one of the most important sales techniques, if any of you are salespeople here, and probably a large number of you are, you will know. If you want to sell something to someone, get that product into their hands as soon as you can. You go around a shop, you ladies, go into Marks and Spencers, and you see a dress you like there, and you start looking at it, I guarantee the sales assistant will come up to you and say, would you like to try it on? Because the moment you've got it on, you're already half-possessing it. If you want to sell uh, a typewriter to someone, and you say, okay, and you set it up and say, type, type, get into it, get involved in it. And that's what Jesus did here. He got the disciples involved. He borrowed their boat. He got into the boat himself before they had become disciples. He was getting them involved. That's one of the most important keys for the future, getting people involved. Do you remember the story, the turning point in that now old book, The Cross and the Switchblade? Do you remember how Nicky Cruz and his gang were converted was when Dave Wilkerson did the absurd thing of asking these hoodlums to take up the offering. He got them involved and he trusted them. And through that came their conversion. Get people involved. Now what is this Jesus getting them involved? Now we know because we are Christians, or most of us I trust here, I hope all of us here are Christians, so we have affirmed together, Lord I need you. I really need you. Of course we need him. We can't be saved without Jesus Christ. We can't be baptized in the Spirit without him. We can't be holy people without him. We know that. We need him. But one of the next most important things for all of us is to hear the Lord saying to us, I need you. And that's, I believe, what the Lord Jesus Christ wants to say to every single person, whatever your age, 
whatever you're experiencing Christ this afternoon, the Lord Jesus is pointing as old General Kitchener did in the First World War and saying, I need you. I need every labourer. I need every fisherman for these next ten years. I need you. And that's what Jesus was getting across to these men. I need you. I need your boat. I need you. Very important. Now let's switch from Jesus Christ to the fishermen. First instance, they got Jesus into the boat. They didn't ask, them, uh, they didn't ask Jesus into the boat. Jesus asked himself in. He invited himself into the boat. Got into the boat with them. And that's the first thing. It's necessary to get Jesus Christ on board. To make him Lord of our lives. To have him in our lives with us. Into the boat. And then I think the next thing. For these disciples, or uh, about to become disciples, was to get across to them, as Jesus so obviously did, what it is to follow Jesus Christ. It means to be radical. Radical in our discipleship. Radical in our evangelism. Radical in our understanding of life and our lifestyle. Be radical. Secondly, be adventurous. Do things that other people will laugh at if necessary. Be prepared to do things that no one else has ever done in spite of what your senior church warden may tell you. Pray for creative imagination. Seek above all else to be led by the Holy Spirit. And this is what I want to say too about evangelism in this coming decade. There are now going to be hundreds and hundreds of new books are going to come out. You're, we're going to be buried with strategies and statistics from everyone. Uh, last week in uh, Switzerland, I heard one of the Maltese leaders. His name is Nico Baldacino. And I tell you, if there's any one place in the world where God is using a tiny country in a most remarkable way, it's Malta, from Malta the Roman Catholic Renewal in Malta. Teams are going out all over the world. There's an evangelism team from Malta, now in New Zealand. And this man, I think he came originally from the drug culture, he's a layman, and he is an amazingly successful, enthusiastic evangelist. And he spoke to us about, he said, beware of the professors of fishology. The people who are experts in the field of evangelism. You see, the disciples could have said to Jesus, we don't want to listen to you, you're not an expert, you're a carpenter. Carpenters don't know anything about fishing. We need to be careful of the experts. The thing the Lord wants us all to do is not to go on umpteen more courses on evangelism, but to go and do it. Not to read books on fishing, but to go and fish and see what happens. Let your nets down for a catch. That's what we need, I believe. We need to be involved in doing it. And then something which I, I suppose barely need to say in this company is we need to believe in miracles. Now we've seen miracles. We've been involved in uh, ministers like John Wimbers. We've seen the miracles that he has uh, uh, been involved with and signs and wonders and so on. But beloved brothers and sisters, we need also to believe in the miracles for evangelism, as we heard this morning from David McInnes, to believe that there will be people who will say, uh, or God will say to them, go to St. John's this evening to hear the word of God. 
We need to believe in the miraculous way in which we are going to be led. Now Jesus did miracles, or did this miracle, not to catch fish, but to catch men. That's the important thing. And that's what miracles, signs and wonders are for. Not to interest the Christians. Not to make us prosperous, but to catch men and women. To bring men and women who don't know Jesus and his love into his kingdom. And then last of all, in connection with miracles, I want to say this. That if you have empty nets, you don't have any problems. Very easy to haul in empty or half-empty nets. The problems the disciples had to face were nets that were breaking with the multitude of the fish and their boats were ready to sink. That's the problem they had to face. Does it not thrill you and excite you? I hope I can get through these next ten years because our problem is not going to be failure anymore. Our problems are going to be success and how to handle it. And that leads me on to handling success. All of us have experienced failure. All of us have learnt over the years how to handle failure in our lives. And for some of us it has been very hard. We've been through hard times, wilderness years perhaps. And it's been tough and difficult. But brothers and sisters, we not only need to know how to handle failure, we need to know how to handle success. And not many people know that. Because with success comes pride. With success comes an independent spirit. With success comes triumphalism. And that's bad. The first thing we need to all learn about handling success when it comes is to accept it as it comes from God. You see, Jesus wanted these disciples to be successful. He wanted them to catch fish because he wanted to show them that then they could go and catch men. He wanted them to see success. There's a story told about a bishop who went once to a church. It had been a church where years before it had fallen on very bad times. Very few people uh, going to church. The whole thing was very dismal, very sad. And the Lord sent a man there who transformed the whole thing. And with God's help, there were now hundreds of people. There was a real renewal, strong renewal going on in that church. And the bishop came uh, one Sunday and took a service and he was so thrilled with what he saw and he wanted to impress upon the people the wonderful work that God had done, the wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit. What wonderful work the Holy Spirit has done amongst you, he said. And he gave all the glory to God. And after the service was over, the priest got the bishop privately aside and he said, Bishop, you should have seen this church when the Holy Spirit was on his own. Now, the church, God's work, go together. The Holy Spirit works through us and the Lord wants us to be successful. But he wants us to give the glory to him as we handle that success. And in this story, we see something else which is very important of how to be successful. And that is the best way to handle it is to share it. Share it with others. Again, a message came through from David McInnes this morning, this importance of, of sharing. 
And you see it here so wonderfully in this story because the whole thing was reaching a disaster point. They could have lost everything, their boats, their nets, and all the fish. They couldn't handle it on their own. And so they beckoned to their partners and said, come over and help us. Come over and share in the success of what we're seeing. One of the problems that arises in renewal is the problem of the successful churches, the successful parishes. And one way in which I believe God wants uh, that success to be handled in the right way is for those successful churches to share it with others, to beckon to others and say, come and join in. Let us come and help you with your fishing. God wants to deliver us, I believe, from a spirit of competition in an age that's coming in the next ten years when there's going to be a lot of fruit, a lot of harvesting, a lot of fish coming in. We shouldn't be fighting over who should have which fish, but rather we should be sharing that success. And then, last of all, and perhaps the greatest miracle of this whole story is the way in which those disciples having seen the largest catch they'd ever had, which was surely going in the Guinness Book of Records, actually heard the word of the Lord and turned their back on their success and walked away from it. And that is perhaps the greatest grace of all. We know the grace of how to face failure. The greatest grace of all is how to face success. And perhaps the greatest thing that David Watson ever did in his whole life, was when he turned his back on the success of York and went down to London. It was a harrowing experience for him. And this is very hard for us. It's very hard for clergy to leave a successful parish. Very easy for them to leave a failure, a failed parish. But very difficult, a successful parish. But that's what these people did. And that's what Paul says in Philippians about his own ministry. He said, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. That Christ and his gospel is more important than the success we may see. Remember the disciples came back having been successful and rejoicing. Even the demons are subject to us in your name, Jesus. And Jesus says, rejoice not in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And that's interesting to me that our names are written in heaven, not our successes. And thank God not our failures. Our names are there. That's the important thing, written in heaven. I want to end this afternoon by reading your prophecy. One hears a lot of prophecies, some good, some bad, some indifferent ones. So this is one of the most important ones that I've heard for a long time, and it fits in with what I've been sharing with you this afternoon. It was given in the United States. It was shared at the prayer vigil in Jerusalem a few weeks ago. Today is the time of harvest and ingathering, a time when the Spirit is being poured out upon all flesh in these the last days. It is a time when the vats overflow with wine and oil. And the fields are white and heavy for harvest. The Lord, master of the vineyard, has called forth workers into his vineyard to reap the precious fruit of the earth. 
through the centuries. He has called workers into his fields and has promised that they are worthy of their hire. Some have labored since the third hour, others since the sixth hour, and still others since the ninth hour. These have indeed borne the burden and the heat of the day, but still the harvest is not finished. Now the Lord says, I will send to work at your sides eleventh hour workers, those who have been idle because no man would hire them. And although their work will be short, they will make the difference between success and failure. Unlike many before them, this army of workers will be mostly young people who will go forth to proclaim the gospel without fear or compromise. Most of their converts will also be young people. They will come from the nations and peoples that you least expect. They are a great company that you do not know at this time, but the Lord is preparing them even now. They will bring in a harvest that will exceed that of all the other workers combined. Through them, ancient walls and kingdoms will fall. They will be utterly without fear. Through astounding ministries of signs and wonders, many peoples long abandoned and considered unreachable will be brought into the kingdom. In the end, they will receive the same reward as you who have borne the burden and the heat of the midday sun, even of those who were persecuted and martyred. The day will come when you shall know them, and together you will rejoice in the midst of the harvest and in the glorious day of the Lord. You must pray for and welcome these eleventh-hour workers that I will give to you. You must not be jealous of them, but rejoice at the reward that I will give them, for they were willing to come at the last hour, and without them the harvest will not be complete. Dear God, we thank you for this amazing hour that you have brought us to, this eve of a decade of evangelism. Thank you for our church that is committing itself to these years of harvesting. Lord, speak to each one of us. We thank you for this encouraging prophecy that those who are as yet have not been employed in the harvest are being called, especially the young people. We pray that we may receive them and welcome them. And they, together with us, may be able to see, Lord, these coming years of a harvesting of thousands and millions of people throughout the world who will acknowledge Jesus as Lord, so that by the year 2000 there will be a majority of people in the world who acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Help us to think all the time about the harvest, to think about fishing and about going fishing, launching into the deep, taking risks, being adventurous, being led by the Spirit, having Jesus on board to tell us when to let down the nets. Help us to deliver us from a competitive spirit, give us a spirit of love so that we can share the success with one another and not fight over the fish, but share together that the nets won't break the boats won't sink, but more and more fish may be gathered in. So help us, Lord, in these days. For Jesus' sake. Amen.